neuroscientists believe that 95% of cognitive activity, so brain activity, is unconscious. Where are you pointing that 5%? What are you using that on in terms of your attention span? But what are you learning? Fiona Merton, occupational psychologist. You're pointing your brain at something that your brain then helps you to shape your behavior on. How damaging can it be for one's mental health to find yourself in a position where you know you are living and working in a career that isn't fulfilling? It's really damaging. Threat to your own personal identity, what you believe in, who you are, which is... We have something in the brain called the mirror system. And the mirror system is neuronal networks that literally mirror by watching and observing and learn what other people are doing. Your values and your core systems and the behaviours and the way you talk and what you believe in are much more shaped by the people that you're surrounded by on a day-to-day -day basis. When she was about two years old, her parents left her outside in the cold and it turned out that her parents were both alcoholics. She literally was looking to survive and found stray dogs to curl up with and keep warm with. She ended up living with them for like five years, but she couldn't talk. She walked on all fours. She lapped up water like a dog. She scavenged for, for scraps. She couldn't recognize her own reflection and she couldn't read the intention of other people because Hello there, friends. Welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm Matthew. I'm here Mondays and Thursdays, almost to 400 episodes in the archive now. If you're new, well, you're most welcome. And if you're coming back, if you're returning, we must have done something right the last time, which is always great to hear. Uh, either way, if you are enjoying listening in, please do like, please subscribe and do leave the podcast a positive rating and share. Word of mouth is extremely powerful. And uh, if you're getting value and if you're enjoying listening to these episodes, perhaps other people in your life will get a similar benefit. So please do give them the benefit of learning about this podcast. That would be fantastic if you could. Uh, also, we are on YouTube and on Instagram now if you want to check us out over there and become a subscriber too. Uh, some recent interviews I've done have been very, very popular with thousands of downloads which is great to see. Today, a really interesting interview with Fiona Murden. She is a performance coach, an occupational psychologist, a TED Talk speaker and author of Mirror Thinking, How Role Models Make Us Human. In this episode, we ask, what exactly is mirroring? We hear about an extreme example of mirroring where a poor young girl was raised by dogs and she mirrored their behaviour in every way. We ask how damaging it is to one's mental health to have a career which is leaving you unfulfilled. We learn how we are shaped and influenced by other people's moods and expect to learn how to harness the power of mirroring for your benefit. You're an occupational psychologist. First of all, what does that profession involve? Yeah, it's interesting. It usually throws people that title because when you say occupational, they suddenly think you're an occupational therapist. So my career in particular has been working mainly with leaders or prominent people 
and helping them to uh, unlock further potential and to succeed at a higher level than they are already. And that obviously, as you know, is underpinned by well-being and emotional health as well, because you can't get to peak performance without having that underpinning. Um, and I've worked with chief execs of big FTSE 100 companies through to uh, founders of organizations, creative sports people, medics. Um, and I really love what I do. Well, your book focuses on the idea of mirroring. Could you explain to us exactly what you mean when you use the term mirroring? Yeah, so there's a theory, and it is a theory, um, that we have something in the brain called the mirror system. And the mirror system is a system of um, neuronal networks that literally mirror by watching and observing and learn what other people are doing. So if you think about it, if you imagine playing, you've played tennis or you've caught a ball before, you then watch Wimbledon. And we, in our brain, play through the actions and the movements of that person that we're watching without actually carrying out that movement ourselves. And that's a way of learning and refining our own behaviour. And it's not just through observation, it's through hearing people, it's through um all sorts of different sensory inputs and if you think about it our behavior is constantly shaped by the people around us um whether it is the mirror system or not it is a social learning system within our brain that enables us to learn how to be human I keep coming back to this on this podcast about human beings being social creatures. And I think your book uh, really spells that out perfectly because it devotes entire sections of the book to those people with whom we have the most intimate of relationships. We're talking friends, but especially family. We mirror our, our family uh, and the people in our families for good and for bad. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the interesting concept of role modeling is people will tend to think, Oh, role models like Prime Minister of UK, maybe not, but you know, someone like that, or or a president, or a a, a celebrity, or a, an athlete. But actually, when you talk to people about who has had the biggest influence on their lives, who they have learned the most from, it's going to be someone very close to them, and that is, I mean, ninety five percent of the time, that is true. Um, and so while those people may be what I call aspirational role models, they're people we might look to and think, oh, as a child, you might look to a footballer and say, one day I want to be, I want to be a pro footballer. Um, yes, it will shape your decision on how, where you're going, but your values and your core systems and the behaviours and the way you talk and what you believe in are much more shaped by the people that you're surrounded by on a day-to-day -day basis. I want you to tell listeners and viewers about the the poor Ukrainian girl, her incredible story about her being left out in the cold one night and then being reared by wild animals. Can you tell us about this and then what relationship her she had with mirroring and then how it affected her negatively and her development, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's it is it's a it's a horrendous story, and I'm sure there are other stories like it, unfortunately, in the world. But this particular one we hear about is Oksana Malaya, um, was born in quite a rundown village in Ukraine, and 
when she was about two years old, her parents left her outside in the cold. And it turned out that her parents were both alcoholics. They didn't notice. They shut her out. And she literally was looking to survive and found stray dogs to curl up with and keep warm with. She ended up living with them for, uh, I think it was five, I might not get the number exactly right, but it was something like five years before she was reported to the authorities, you know, that, that there's a child that is not living in a home with parents. And when she was found, I think the thing that's most striking is we'd expect that she wouldn't be able to read or add up, but she couldn't talk. She walked on all fours. She lapped up water like a dog. She scavenged for for scraps. She couldn't recognize her own reflection and she couldn't read the intention of other people because during that time, children normally have these tiny little every day, every second interactions that are shaping our ability to be able to do those things from talking to importantly being able to read someone else's intentions and that's almost like the the highest form of that um she was examined by psychologists and doctors and they said there was nothing actually wrong with her but it had been that situation that had caused this to happen but as a result she'd missed a critical period of development where she would typically have been learning how to interact and depend on and respond to other people. And so she was always, she's always had to remain in some form of sheltered housing and care since then. It's extraordinary because the the concept of, of mirroring, it happened perfectly here. She just mirrored these feral creatures around her perfectly, but her development as far as a human was concerned was retarded because she wasn't provided with any human interaction. Yeah, yeah. And it's and I think the thing that's really interesting about that is we then think, well, you know, as children, we have these theories like you can only learn a language to a certain age or you think, well, those are critical developmental periods. They are. But the thing we don't realize and we actually become almost arrogant to as adults is those things are still impacting us. So we are still learning every single moment of every single day, not consciously. If we make it conscious, it can be far more beneficial to us because we can direct it in the right way. But we start to pick things up and adjust our behavior, adjust our tastes to 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 mirror the people around us we might think i don't do that i'm independent i don't do what anyone else does but if you look at the way we dress we change the way we dress as we get older according to fashion so you probably wouldn't wear the same type of jeans now as you did when you're 18 and and you don't consciously think when did that happen when did i make that decision it's a case of just going along and fitting in with what's going on around us I want to come back to that notion of what we're aware of consciously and what we aren't aware of consciously in a second. But if I can just revisit another point that you made there about, by your own admission, you chose the wrong people to mirror whenever you left university. And that resulted in you following a particular career path that left you feeling unfulfilled. Can you tell me about this? And then was this the period in your life that prompted you then to examine your own relationship with mirroring and who you were mirroring? and your reasons for mirroring those people you do good research um so i 
yeah, when I when I was leaving university, I wasn't sure what to do. And so I did what was almost expected of someone who'd been to a red brick university, which was to join a management consultancy firm. Um, and so I joined. And actually, you know, there were some interesting elements around mirroring there because I started really observing other people's behavior, apart from my own decision to then leave. There was one guy, and I will name him because he knows who he is, Tom Roberts, and he was younger than me, but he had so much gravitas and impact. And I used to watch him and see how he did things with clients and how he carried himself and what tiny little behaviors and iterations would lead to that level of impact and gravitas. And I told him that probably about five or six years ago, sort of kept in loose contact with him, saw him occasionally, and I said, you know what? When we were at uh, Anderson Consulting together, I learned from you. I used to watch you and watch how you did things. So I was I was consciously mirroring, but I had unconsciously mirrored my way into a career that wasn't right for me. Um, and then I withdrew from, from that, went back to university, studied uh, organizational psychology, and then became immersed in this environment with other clinical, criminal, organizational psychologists where we were working on helping people to unlock their potential and to perform more optimally. Mm. I will still say that knowing and doing are very different things. So I think there's an element, even when you're, you've mirrored someone and how to do something, that there's, there's a whole other piece which is then putting that into action. And it's a bit like with sport, you could go along and we may be able to, I don't know how good you are at tennis, but for me, I might be able to play a bit of tennis. I'm not going to play it like Venus Williams standard. And there's a piece between actually knowing how and then refining and refining and refining that behavior in terms of making it something that's more automatic, something that's more skilled. Um, and the same is true of our emotional learning as well. Just as an aside, given that you're a psychologist, I'd like to hear your take on this. How damaging can it be for one's mental health to find yourself in a position where you know you are living and working in a career that isn't fulfilling? It's really damaging for mental health. Um, and if you start off with the premise of if even in an environment where values do not match, so that is one of the key foundations, do your values align now not directly align but do they align with the environment you're operating in it can also if we take it from values just the level that someone isn't happy they don't feel they belong it's incredibly undermining on self-esteem self-worth self-confidence and i've often seen throughout my career when i've been working even with senior leaders who have a lot more autonomy than people who are more junior in organizations they're wrong in the wrong environment they're so unhappy, but what it does is it actually erodes your level of uh, self-confidence and ability to believe that you can get out of that environment because you've started doubting yourself. And so it's a horrible trap that people sometimes get into. And that has a big negative impact on mental health. Yeah, self-doubt is especially corrosive, I think. Yeah, absolutely. 
What was news to me was learning that we are constantly being shaped by other people's moods and uh, we aren't even aware of this and uh, we're only conscious of about 5% of what we interact with. This is referring to a point that you made earlier. Yeah, so at the moment, again, neuroscience is learning new things all the time, but at the moment, neuroscientists believe that 95% of cognitive activity, so brain activity, is unconscious. So we're actually only in control of 5%. And so, I mean, when you're working with leaders, you then would be saying, or people who are sort of really trying to refine their behavior is, where are you pointing that 5%? What are you, what are you using that on in terms of your attention span? But what are you learning? Are you, are you allowing yourself to be conscious of what you're doing right and wrong and thinking about those sorts of things? Not right and wrong as in morally, but in terms of where you want to get to. And it's hard work being conscious of things as well. So, you know, the reason 95% of our cognitive activity is unconscious is because it makes it automatic and we don't have to think about it. Um, it's hard work using that 5% because it's very effortful. It um, uses the prefrontal cortex of our brain. But if we can use that 5% to direct ourselves in the right way, it helps a lot. So, for example, if someone wants to become a better orator, public speaker, one of the most effective ways to do that is to find someone they like and respect um, and watch videos of them. But be conscious of what you're doing, you're watching, and you're pointing your brain at something that your brain then helps you to shape your behavior on. So it's almost like you've got a little child and it's toddling along and you kind of point it in the direction you want it to go. And occasionally it keeps going off course, but you pick it up and you pull it back and you step it up again. And so it's this constant course correcting and that's hard work. So it's not something that you'd say, right, you need to be doing this all the time. It's something that is part of unlocking potential, performing more optimally. Um, and it can be about mental health as well, because you can look at people's attitudes and beliefs and the way they see the world and allow that to shape you positively as well, if that's more positive than the way you see the world. No, it's so true. And again, another thing which keeps coming back in this podcast, which, which is all about health and wellness and uh, mindset and uh, self-improvement, is that uh, propensity towards people to being self-aware uh, in the moment, especially because you can't really bring about any change, any substantial positive change, unless you're aware of what you're doing in the moment. Yeah. And then there's a lovely woman, uh, not just lovely, very impressive in terms of the work she's done called Dr. Tasha Urich, who's got a great, I think she's done two uh, TED talks actually on self-awareness and she wrote a book called Insight. Um, and she makes this point, which I've told her I use actually, which is if you, what I do is I get a room full of people. If I'm giving a talk and self-awareness is an element of it. And I'll say who in this room thinks they're self-aware. And most of the audience will put their arms up, their hands up. But the actual data shows that only between 10 and 15% of people are self-aware. So we're not even aware of not being self-aware, if that makes sense. And and it's a hard, it, again, it's effortful. It's a hard thing to do. And so therefore we should be not trying to do it all the time because it's unrealistic. 
and finding ways to shortcut it into what we already do. So if you want to speak better in a meeting and you have to go to a meeting with someone who speaks well every day, watch them. There's nothing there extra on top of what you're already doing. Yes, it requires remembering to do it and it requires that conscious step over the, right, I'm going to do this. But apart from that, it's trying to find things that actually just fit into what you're doing already. Well, I suppose the other aspect of being self-aware is that you become your your own critic in a sense. For example, if I want to become a better presenter, a better questioner uh, on these uh, interviews, I sit down and watch the interviews afterwards. And it's, it's an uncomfortable place to be, but it's the only way for me to become better at doing this particular job and ask better questions in the long run. Well, it's interesting because uh, Tasha says that basically she was a bit puzzled by some of the research that she did because there were these people who she would have thought would be self-aware, but actually they were more anxious and depressed. And the difference she found was when people ask uh, why internally, why is this happening? Why am I doing that? Why am I not as good as that person about this? you can start going into a negative loop and a spiral. If you ask what, it makes it a far more constructive way of analyzing the way you do things. What did I do there? What did I say there? What could I do differently? And it's a really subtle shift, but it's a massively important one because when I've talked about self-awareness to teenagers, it's one I always bring up because teenagers can very easily get into massive loops if they try to be more self-aware because they don't know the answers and and therefore what does that mean and it goes round and round and round and we try and solve our internal world like we would solve the external world but actually we can't solve our internal world or work it out and so we have to learn different ways of working with it and that's one example of something we're not generally taught because it's in our heads but it's the difference of how we do that, that can be massively important to mental health as well. Swapping why for what. Very interesting, very powerful. Can I ask you, um, you believe the modern world is getting in the way of our ability to develop new behaviours and new habits. And uh, you have said, and I'm quoting you, uh, you've said that every glance at a screen is a lost opportunity to grow a neural network. Now, I completely agree with you here, but can you explain your rationale? Yeah. And, you know, you write things in a form that says, listen to what I'm saying. So it it's sort of making it probably more black and white than it as in, is in reality. We do know, though, with research on um, social media, that it's damaging to people who are already vulnerable. So, for example, um, a girl who's seeing lots of pictures of self-harm and is always already feeling anxious, that she's more likely to then self-harm. In a normally functioning, healthy, well-being individual, what social media does, it takes you away from real life. Um, not just social media, but just being on the phone. It takes you away from these moments where like, I'm sat in the car at the moment, but I can see a guy going into a gate and I'm like, what's, what's he doing? And who's he talking to? And that is all information. We don't realize it's information we need but it helps us to make sense of the environment we're in. And then obviously there's the more literal form, which is it takes us away from having face-to-face 
real life conversations where it feeds our emotional health. I don't know if that explains it. Oh, no, it absolutely does. And I, I suppose my next question then is, and how do we tap in to this innate ability uh, that is within us to mirror things um, in our in our lives for the better? Because uh, obviously what you, you've alluded to uh, tapping into mirroring then negative things as far as being online and uh, engaging with social media is concerned, which has a negative impact on our mental health, etc. So, but how do we harness our ability to mirror things, but do so in a positive way? And I, I mean, I think this comes back down to the same basic principles that we would. I don't know if you've heard of the NHS mental health five a day, which I am very disappointed that they haven't made a big thing of because it's I think it's really good. But it says the things that if we had to choose five things that are going to make us mentally healthy, it will be I'll probably forget one now. Um, uh, it would be mindfulness. So mindfulness doesn't mean necessarily sitting and meditating, but it does mean being aware of what's going on around us and our body and what we're feeling and what we're seeing. Learning, so learning something new, connecting with other people, giving back to other people and being physically active. And then if I take if I take those elements, the mindfulness and the two around people, uh, social and actually the learning one as well, are all linked into mirroring to some degree, even though we haven't explicitly said that, because it's about our emotional learning with mindfulness and being in touch with what's going on. And with the social element, it's about how we are feeding our social networks in our brain in the right way. And being able to connect with someone meaningfully, help someone, those are things that we don't have to think about. We have to make a decision to do because our world is so busy, we have to think, have I meaningfully connected with people today? And can I do a better job tomorrow? But if we're doing those things, our brain will take care of itself. The other thing I'd say is, is not go into paralysis, analysis paralysis, but think about what do I want to get better at? And just pick maybe three things, maybe even one. And then you can deliberately think about people who do that well, who you like, who you feel a connection with, and you can watch videos of them. You can listen to podcasts of them. All those sorts of things will be feeding your brain without you having to be consciously aware that it's feeding your brain. Humanity has a history of mentoring and mentorships. I know uh, that the term mentoring was first mentioned back in Homer's Odyssey a couple of thousand years ago. And we know in ancient ancient Rome and Greece that the, uh, the philosophers had mentors. There was Plato, Aristotle and Socrates. They all mentored each other at one point or another. And then uh, all the way through to the Age of Enlightenment. And then e even in recent years, there are famous examples of, of people mentoring other celebrities, for example, Steve Jobs mentored uh, Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Oprah Winfrey was mentored by the famous author Maya Angelou. I'm just curious uh, to find your your opinion on, on mentoring. Is that a, an extension of uh, the idea of mirroring? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's great segue, actually, because um, I've developed a platform which is about matching mentors and mentees 
based on psychological factors. So you get a very good rapport and trust right from the beginning, which then speeds up the opportunity to help. Um, it guides the mentor and it guides the mentee. So it's giving tips and tools around how to best optimize things from a psychological perspective. And what we've actually introduced into it now as well as an ally. So if you think about, for example, women within the workplace, we know that to, to really tackle gender uh, diversity, we need to include men, but not include them like, hey, come along to something. Do it in a way that men feel empowered as well. And so if a woman is uh, trying to transition to a different level at work, they have potentially a mentor, but they also ask an ally to join the platform and we guide the ally and how best to support them. And what I feel like we're doing is providing the framework and support that in an ancient tribal environment would have just been there naturally. But because of the way our world is made up, we have all these barriers to doing that. And it's saying, well, okay, we're trying to remove some of those barriers and enable this because mentoring and allyship are so powerful. And really what it comes down to is meaningful human connection. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. I'd love to have had the benefit of having a mentor myself at various junctures of my own career. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I I really do believe that mentoring can can supercharge somebody's progress and their development because you're 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 really benefiting from somebody else's experience who's been there and done that before you. So I, I love that idea. And I think it's a classic example of that, the idea of mirroring that we've been talking about. Yeah, and it's also the having someone believe in you on those days when you don't believe in yourself, because we all have them. We all have days where we feel like, really, am I really going to achieve what I want to? Should I keep going? If you've got a mentor there, they're going to say, yes, of course you should keep going. And and just that piece is so critical. And it, when, when it, I mean, ultimately, I want to move it down into adolescent populations where there's less privileged kids and it will change lives being mentored the right way having someone believe in you the right way can change a life absolutely powerful words the book is called mirror is thinking fiona if people want to find out more about you and about your book where can they go um i'm fiona murden which is m-u-r-d and and all my social media handles are fiona murden um, there's my website's also Fiona Murden, and if they if people want to see more about Oka, which is our platform, that is um, Oka dot life. Great stuff, and I'll I'll actually pop a link to uh, that website and your socials into the show notes for this episode. But uh, for the moment, Fiona Murden, author of Mirror Thinking, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. I really enjoyed speaking to you. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Habit Podcast. As always, if you're enjoying tuning in and you've not already done so, please like, subscribe, share with someone else who you think might enjoy tuning in and do leave the podcast a positive rating, be it three, four, five stars, whatever you think we deserve. Until next time, stay happy. Mm -hmm.